0: Thank you, uh, everyone who's taken part so far, especially Gareth, for sacrificing his knuckles for the sake of the children. Um, I'm Mike, I'm one of the pastors here, I'll be speaking on that passage, so do keep it open in front of you. Um, I just want to, before uh, speaking, say that I too have been in Snowden and returned in one piece, uh, with only one injury to speak of, and... uh, if you're not a part of the church, Snowden is a, an annual trip for men's ministry. Men go up to a remote place. And I didn't know quite what to expect. I thought it would be a cross between a reality TV show and Lord of the Flies. Um, but to actually, it, it turned out to be a very d- a deep experience. And I think what I noticed, the genius of this trip, is that men, many men, don't talk deeply very often. And they don't share their hearts or their um, spiritual condition, but the the environment there creates a place where they can, and some really significant things, I believe, are going on. So that was encouraging. Uh, One more thing, I want to give a special welcome to some American visitors. We clearly didn't have any Canadians, but we do have people from the United States. So if you're here with the Converge group, could you just wave your hand? Here they are, welcome. It's lovely to have you. Um, Church members will know that Steve and Amanda Bialy are are from the Converge Network and part of Steve's work and ministry here is to help build partnerships between Converge in the States and British and Irish churches uh, for a a mutual gospel connection. So we're really thrilled to have you with us and pray that God will bless you with us. Uh, Do go and say hello to them. If you're not sure who they are, they're the ones with perfect teeth and a positive mental attitude. Uh, We're going to pray and then uh, dive into this passage. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit, we pray, and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth, through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, the hall you're sitting here today is actually named after an athlete called Eric Liddell. He was a brilliant runner. He qualified to represent Scotland in the 1924 Paris Olympics. He was due to run in the 100 meters, which was his, uh, his best uh, race. But Eric was also a deeply committed Christian. And so when he discovered that the trial heats for the race were was scheduled for a Sunday... He refused to participate because he believed that that would dishonor the Lord's Day. Now, can you imagine the pressure that would have been placed on the young athlete? What do you mean? You're not going to represent your country because of doing a race on a Sunday? Eric must have felt that he was placed in an impossible dilemma. But he agreed to run on another day in another race. It wasn't his favorite distance. It was the 400 meters. And when the day of the Olympic race came, Eric went to the starting blocks. They were all getting ready to race. And a a, a masseur from the American Olympic team came over and slipped a piece of paper into his hand. And he opened it and, and read a text from the Bible, those who honor me, I will honor. Inspired by that text, Eric won the race, and set a new world record in the 400 metres. It is an amazing story, isn't it? But it's not the end of the story, because Eric Liddell also found himself in seemingly impossible situations later in life. At the age of 23, he turned his back on athletics and fame and fortune, and he went to China as a missionary. And Eric was used by God in wonderful ways. But in 1943, he was captured by the Japanese Uh, soldiers and put in a prison camp, along with other Westerners, and conditions in this camp were absolutely wretched. Eric became a kind of informal leader. He served fellow inmates ceaselessly. He ran games and activities for the young people. Norman Cliff was one uh, inmate in that camp. He later wrote and described Liddell as the finest Christian gentleman it has been my pleasure to meet in all the time in the camp. I never heard him say a bad word about anyone. Another inmate, Langdon Gilkey, wrote, often in an evening I would see him bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of dance, absorbed, weary, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the imagination of the penned-up youths. He was overflowing with good humour and love for life and with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone else I've I've ever known. Those men survived to write their memoirs. Liddell did not. He died in the camp from a brain tumor at the age of 43. Eric Liddell dealt with impossible situations with grace and courage because he had confidence in the promises of God. His dying words were these, It is complete surrender. And those words sum up his his life and faith. How can we deal with impossible situations? Not just scraping through and surviving, but how could we shine in impossible situations and come through stronger and more reliant on God and, 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 and greater in faith? How can we? Have you ever been placed in a dilemma, maybe an ethical one, in which it seemed that There was no clear plan of action. It wasn't like a clear black and white, just lots of grey. And Obeying God is going to create a nightmare. You know, people sometimes think that Christianity should make life easy. They think that becoming a Christian is a crutch for the weak, a support that you cling to, hoping to make your life simple. Others claim that if you obey and trust God, you should be healthy, wealthy, and happy all of the time. Now, both of those ideas are deeply mistaken. This is not the picture of the life of faith that the Bible paints. What we see in this chapter from the life of Abraham is that the life of faith actually may be very hard indeed, but God keeps his promises. The life of faith may be hard, but God keeps his promises. And if you only remember one thing from today, uh, remember that. The life of faith may be hard But God keeps his promises, and I think there's something coming up on the screen to remind us of that. First point, the life of faith may be hard. Now, last week, we thought about the extraordinary promises God gave this man, Abraham. And Pauline's just read them for us in chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. God promised he would make him into a great nation and bless him and make his name great so that he would be a blessing to others. God would protect him. He would bless those who bless him, and whoever dishonors Abraham would be cursed by God. Climactically, every nation or every family on earth would be blessed in or through Abraham. So, this is a person, one little person who's going to somehow God's going to use to reverse all of the tragedy and darkness of the first 11 chapters of the Bible and restore the world to God's intentions through this man and his descendants. That's why this is such an important section of the Bible. And that's final promise is inconceivably great. God, in chapter 11, had scattered the human family all around the world. The human race had sunk to a level of degradation. God had introduced disunity at the level of language. No longer could people always freely communicate with one another. Our American friends will know that it's often said, Britain and America are two nations divided by a common language. <laughs> Even understanding Americans and English is hard. Only a work of God can bring us back together. Do you want to live in a world of unity and peace? Or a world of disunity and war? I know where I want to live. And this promise says that somehow through this man Abram and his descendants... It's going to come that world of peace, the world we all want, for everyone, the whole world. So this inconceivably great promise to Abraham is not just that Abraham will be great, but that he will be an instrument of God's restoring the world. Now, in order to receive these promises, what does Abraham have to do? He has to be obedient. Faith is obedience. Chapter 12, verse 1, he has to leave three things, his country, his kindred, and his father's house. Notice he's not asked to leave anything that God isn't going to replace, and then some. He leaves his country. God promises to take him to a new land, flowing with milk and honey. He leaves his kinship group, his roots, his family, the security of that. But God will give him a family that will become a great nation. At this point, he doesn't have any children. He's going to leave his father's house, probably implies leaving his inheritance but God's going to take care of his inheritance from now on God will care and provide for Abraham and as a result Abraham will care and provide for others so the question is at this point does God keep his promises you've got to ask that question friends all of us have to ask it if you're not a Christian here or you're not sure where you are in your faith commitments this is a key question Does God keep his promises? If you are a Christian here who is suffering something, and some will, you're probably asking it already. Does God keep his promises? We all need to ask it. So let's see, shall we? Now, the reason why the question is quite urgent at times is look what happens next. With every act of obedience, Abram's life gets harder Say it again. With every act of obedience, Abraham's life gets worse. But when life seems impossible, God shows up and keeps his promises. First of all, Abraham obeys and goes of chapter 12, verse 4 and 6. So he went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old. When he set out from Haran, he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. They arrive there. They pack up, lot, stock, and barrel, everything. And let me just say, these are wealthy people. It's not a sin to be wealthy. They have a lot of possessions. They have people. A lot of people go with them. We should not imagine that Abraham just had a donkey, a tent, and a camping stove. You know, sometimes it's pictured like that. Kids' Bibles. You know, he's there with a tent. I got it from the supermarket and camping stove. No, no, no. is a merchant prince. we will think more about that in a minute. At this point, we're just noting that they, they take everything and go on the most slender of instructions without a sat nav or Google Maps or even an ordnance survey map. They just go, and the distance from Haran to Cana is about 500 miles which would take the best part of a month to travel at that average caravan speed. And they get there, and that... So, okay, you think now he's obeyed and gone, right? We've had that great act of faith. What should happen next in in our kind of construction of of what life should be like? Is they just walk into a wonderful land, and and that's the end of the story. What actually happens? There's a rude awakening. The land is already occupied. So my sub-point for uh, the life of faith may be hard is that there are Canaanites in the land. Have a look at verse 6 again. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem, and that time the Canaanites were in the land. Let's just pause there for a moment. We could skip that. But what that means is the land he's being promised is already taken. It's already occupied. This is like spending all of your savings. You save for five years. Ten years you saved up for this fabulous holiday. And you arrive at the idyllic promised location, somewhere in the Maldives or something. And you sleep in your five-star accommodation and you rise early to go and sit by the pool. But when you get there, all the sunbeds have towels on them already. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know what this is like. The Canaanites are here. The Canaanites are here, they got up earlier than you, and they put their towel on the sunbed. And these Canaanites are not just here on holiday, you know. There's a reason why this country is called Canaan. Because they own it. And Abraham travels around, and you notice all these sort of geographic things, and he sees large, intimidating cities. Three of them are mentioned, Shechem, Bethel, and Ai. And at least one of them is is a walled fortress, like a castle. Shechem, a trade center, wealthy, powerful, also a religious center. Notice in verse 6, the great tree, the site of the great tree of Moreh. Now, this is not like a, a really nice, you know, old tree, like the great oak tree in Sherwood Forest that Robin Hood used to hang around with his friends. This is quite sinister, Because Canaanite religion is really dark. Canaanite religion involved child sacrifice. Some Canaanites offered, sacrificed their babies to their, their idols. Modern archaeologists in the last hundred years have found graveyards there full of the remains of children from child sacrifices. So, welcome to the promised land. What's happening, Lord? A country full of Canaanites. They're established, strong, rich, embedded in evil cultural practices. How do you think Abram feels at this moment? Does God keep his promises? This seems impossible. How am I ever going to live here? But although the life of faith may be very hard, God never abandons his people. That's our point. In verse 7, God does something very special for Abraham, he's never done this before, I think. He appears to him. Verse 7, the Lord Yahweh appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he's reassuring him. So he, Abraham, built an altar there to the Lord. Now this is new. Previously, Abraham heard a voice. Now he sees some kind of manifestation of God's presence, reassuring him. The, 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 the theologians call this, A theophany, an appearance of God, a theophany. And God reassures him, to your offspring, your kids, I'll give this lad. Now that is an interesting comment, isn't it? Because Abraham is 75 years old and he has no children. And his wife's about 65. She's past menopause. So although God is reassuring him, what has God actually given him? A promise. That's all. He's just given him his word. And at this moment, all Abraham has to hang on to in the midst of this impossible situation is the word of God. No children in sight, but God has promised. And that promise is enough for him here. He trusts God, he responds in faith, and he builds an altar to worship God there, probably heaping large stones and making something, a a structure. Perhaps it's even in sight of the spreading tree of Moray, because this altar is making a statement in that land. It says, we are going to worship the one true God in this place. Don't know how, don't know when, but we will. And as he travels further down south, he does the same thing. He builds an altar to the living God. But another key thing we learn here about the life of faith is that it's it's not a marathon, it's, it's sorry, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's a journey. It has ups and downs. The life of faith is lived over the long haul, holding the hand of the God of promise. As you what, tr- stumble through this world, sometimes it's a valley of darkness. In the life of faith, you don't just deal with one crisis and then clock off and go to the beach. It's not the way that God deals with his people. Christians, it's not the way God will deal with you. God is in the business of building you into a person who relies on him, not on yourself. Somebody prayed. We have a prayer meeting in this little room behind the reception, 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. And somebody prayed this morning, Lord, help us today in this service not to to, to be changed from being self-sufficient, which is how we all are, by nature, by, by nature, by, by genetics, by nurture, by constant habit, we're all self sufficient. We're all protecting ourselves. And we might do it because some of us are fighters. We always fight. Spent some time this week with a man at Snowden who said, All my life I've really been angry because I have to protect my heart. Some of you were fighters, others it's flight. You just get out of there. If something's going wrong, you duck you're very smooth, you're very charming, you avoid conflict, like, I don't know how you do it, but, but all of this is self-sufficiency, and what God is doing with us Christians is moving us from being self-sufficient to being a person who relies on Him all the time. Amen? And that's what He's doing, that's why we go through these things, it's not just for a laugh, God is building you into a new kind of person, and it takes a lifetime, and we see this in chapter 12, because we've had the... the um, Canaanites in the land we've had famine in the land and now we've got uh, sorry, now we've got another challenge which is a severe famine, verse 10 there was a famine in the land the famine was severe and you think, okay, right, so we came here we came here, we packed up everything you know and here we are and it's full of Canaanites my days oh right, now there's a famine And now we haven't got anything to eat. Okay. This is starting to call into question just how good this land is, isn't it? (laughs) Do you really want to leave everything and go and become a great nation in the desert? You might be a great nation, but you'd be a very skinny nation. And as these questions are troubling Abram's mind, he decides he's going to take bold action to save his household. And he goes, takes a trip down southwest to Egypt. Now, it's well, it was well known that Egypt was very fertile because the e- Egyptian agriculture relied on the flooding of the Nile. Okay? Whereas Palestine relied on rainfall, so it's more susceptible to drought. My wife said to me recently, Mike, I think I'm in denial. And I said, No, love. You're in Chesington, not in Egypt. You guys are a bit sleepy today. Come on. That's the best joke I've got. But here, in Egypt, he walks into another challenge, a second challenge to the life of faith, which is Egyptians behaving badly. Egyptians behaving badly. Now, many people think that the whole trip to Egypt and what happens here is an example of Abraham lacking faith. Many people think that Abraham was a coward, and a liar, and he threw his wife under the bus to save his own skin. Look, they say, he lied. He said she was his sister. He's trying to save his skin. He doesn't even care for his wife. He should never have gone to Egypt. And so that reading takes this whole episode as an example of God looks after you even when you're an idiot. Now, he, he, he does, but I used to think that, but now I think the exact opposite of that. And one reason is if you think that's the way to read this, A big problem is that God apparently blesses the lies and the cowardice by cursing Pharaoh at the end of the chapter, which isn't normally how God... God normally lets us face the consequences of our own sin, not sort of bail us out in a spectacular way. I was persuaded a number of years ago by an Old Testament scholar called Gordon Hugenberger. That was his real name. If you were called Hugenberg,er you'd become an Old Testament scholar too. Actually, what I think this is teaching us is that a common challenge in the life of faith, it's what to do in an ethical dilemma. is it? Isn't an ethical dilemma? Egyptians behaving badly, believers must behave shrewdly. Shrewdly. Where will you be this time tomorrow? You're in this world, when not in heaven yet, you will face difficult ethical challenges. You have to behave shrewdly and be right righteous at the same time. Let me share several points why I believe this is the case here. Firstly, Sarai is Abraham's sister. It's not a lie. Genesis 20, verse 12 shows that she is, in fact, his half-sister. She's the daughter of his father, but not of his mother. And it was acceptable at that time to marry your half-sister. It's also acceptable in Norfolk. Just keeping you with me here. Abraham, therefore, doesn't tell the whole truth, but he doesn't lie. She is his sister. We had some difficult, very tricky, complicated leadership issues in my previous church. And as an old saint, the oldest man in the church, well into his 80s, Dr. Donald Lees, was an academic, a wonderful, wonderful, godly man. And I went to see him and to talk through these issues because he'd heard various rumors. And he heard me out, just listen carefully. And he said, well, he said, I think you've done the right thing. We need the truth. We need nothing but the truth. But we don't need the whole truth. That's true sometimes in church life. It's true sometimes in families, isn't it? You may not be able to tell the whole truth to your kids about something. It's true sometimes in the world of work, the world of family. We need great wisdom to know how to live in this world. So I want to challenge the current Christian scene. The language is everyone's got to be transparent. Everybody's got to be transparent of everything. Oh, there was a lack of transparency. Transparent. Transparent is fairly naked, isn't it? There may be very good reasons why you shouldn't be transparent about something. You need to be truthful. You need to be open. You need to share the truth and, 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 and so on and act with integrity. But not we can't always be transparent and Abraham isn't here. And one reason why he has to do this is that sisters did not inherit from brothers so, by telling Pharaoh that she's his sister, Abraham is advertising the fact if they kill Abraham, they won't, she won't get the money. Killing Abraham will do nothing if it's, a, if it's a brother. In that culture, it would pass to the nearest male relative. So, this is protecting both of them. By saying that she's his sister, Abraham is removing the incentive to bump him off and marry her. If there was no father around, any suitor has to, had to ask the brother for permission to marry a woman in this culture. Abraham would just naturally assume that marriage proposals would have to come through him, and that was how it worked, and that would give him time to work out a solution. And we know that this was Abraham and Sarah's standard practice. In Genesis 20, the same thing happens again, and it says there that they did it at every place. This is what, what they did when they were traveling around, because it protects them both. They never repent of it. They're never confronted with it. It is a shrewd, but righteous course of action in that culture to say she is my sister. But, so let me just pause on that. Behaving shrewdly. Coming back to you guys this time tomorrow. What challenges might you face? Some will be working in uh, a trade. There are lots of ethical challenges in the trades, aren't there? Uh, How much you quote... For customers, how much, how, what happens with VAT, value-added tax? What if somebody wants to pay you in cash uh, to, to, so that you will avoid some taxation? What if you're working in partnership with others who are lying, and if you go a certain way, they will be exposed, and they know it. That's the trades. Then the world of business, some here in the commercial world business is full of ethical challenges. I used to work in an industry where it was common practice to lie pretty much every time you pick the phone up. Because the nature of our work meant we had to be secret. Those working for government, civil service, the NHS, people involved in medicine, there are ethical challenges facing you. 25% of pregnancies this year in this country will end in an abortion. You're in the medical field. You have, to, you have to encounter that. What are you going to do? You will be placed, some of you, in ethical challenges within your own family. People want you to say certain things to other people or do things. Often ethical challenges revolve around money, as they do here. You know, This is not some kind of picture book fable that we're just doing here on Sunday morning because we want to have a good time and have a coffee and go home. This is somebody dealing with a really difficult situation in in real life. He had to go to Egypt to escape a famine, and there he's he's confronted with the, the, the fact that they may try and kill him to take his fortune. But this king is particularly wicked, this pharaoh, by the standards of his own culture. Nobody would expect that a king would kidnap a woman into his harem. Look at verse 15. When Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. This is plain fast and loose. They take her into the house without even asking permission. Why is Pharaoh so eager to do this? Verse uh, 14 and 15. Now, again, we're going to try and look at this and think about our cultural blinders. When Abraham came to, to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman, and when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to to Pharaoh, and he took her into his palace. So what do you think she is the source of her beauty? What do we tend to think? We tend to think that she is a a swimwear model, or she looked like Sophia Loren. She's 65 years old, by the way, when this happens. Uh, Was she a fabulous stunner? in middle age? Maybe. But we need to be aware of our own cultural distortions about beauty. We tend to think about beauty in sensual terms, physical terms, tied to looking youthful and linked to a certain kind of body type and face. But that's a very modern idea, a very superficial idea of beauty. It really only develops when you have visual media in the culture. These things happened before 2000 BC. What do the What does the princes of Egypt see when they see Sarai? They see wealth and power. Kings in the ancient world married as many women as possible, always with foreign alliances. They were intent on it because every marriage is an attempt to seal a deal with important people far away. And that is why King Solomon later married hundreds of women. It's not about lust for beauty, it's about lust for power. So it's, I think Pharaoh's primary attraction is, is political and financial, not physical. They've just arrived in town. Abraham and Sarah have made quite a, stare, a stir. Her name means princess. They're conspicuously wealthy. They have persons acquired in Haran. Abraham has 318 trained men in his household. He's got his own personal army. There's a crowd with them. No wonder Pharaoh's men take note. The Hittites later on say, "Abraham, you are a mighty prince among us. All of Sarai's male relatives back home have cities named after them. Terah, Haran, Nahor, Serug. In the ancient world, it's the high and mighty who have their names attached to a city. And as soon as she gets introduced, people are asking questions. Well, hello. A VIP has just arrived in town. It's like being called Kennedy. Her stock has risen, her family is powerful, and Pharaoh is very interested. Not because she's a swimwear model, but because the older she is, the better. Because when she dies, and he's married her, her wealth will pass to her husband. So all of this is, is going on, all this complicated ethical stuff, and Abraham thinks if we can have marriage negotiations, I'll have time to react. But the plan backfires Abraham, Pharaoh doesn't take the time. He just takes the woman. He breaks all the rules and sends the men to bring her to the palace. And so here they are again. Once again, they're in an impossible situation. They obeyed, and now it's got worse. Abraham is sitting on his own in the travel lodge, wondering where it all went wrong. He's got one of those polystyrene cups. <laughs> coffee and a couple of sugars. Stirring it round. Always have sugar when I feel down, you know. He's stirring the... He's looking at the uh, thing and thinking, what... Where did it all go wrong? The promise looks well and truly over. There's Canaanites in the land. There's famine. There's Egyptians behaving badly. We've got no children. The woman who's supposed to bear the promised child is now in Pharaoh's harem. And he's not looking good, is it? After all the obedience, what is Abram left with? Sitting alone in the travel lodge, stirring the coffee, wondering where it all went wrong. He turns the radio on, and it's the bangles. Walk like an Egyptian. Yes, turns it off again. Sighs. But remember, the main point, the life of faith may be hard, but God keeps his promises. Second point, much quicker. God keeps his promises. Now, even if you disagree with me about this interpretation, you still think Abraham's a liar and a coward. It doesn't really matter. Because the main point here is not about Abraham and his performance. The main point is always about God and his performance. Because God keeps his promises even when the life of faith looks impossibly difficult. Look at verse 16. He, Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake. And Abraham acquired sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord afflicted, inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. A pharaoh passes along some goods, a bit like a dowry or a bride price, enriching Abraham considerably. But really, that's no comfort at all in the promise. And then God steps in. He afflicts Pharaoh and his whole household with plagues. So in verse 20, they send them away with everything they have. Verse 20, Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Now, we need to think just for a moment about the bigger Bible story here. Is there any other time when God sent plagues on Egypt and Pharaoh and the people left with a lot of riches? Is there another time? Yes, there is. Exodus chapter 12, the exodus from Egypt. God sends 10 plagues and his people leave fabulously enriched, They plundered the Egyptians. The prophet Hosea later spoke from God and he said, God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. God sees his people as his children, and he is not a neglectful father. He rescues them when the time is right from Egypt, and he makes his name great in everyone's mind and on their lips. God had promised to protect and bless, and he always keeps his promises. Abraham is protected and blessed here. But we can't just stop there, can we? Because many years later, there was another son who went down to Egypt. His parents were obedient to God, but they still ended up in a nightmare. There was another wicked king. This one was called Herod. His lust for power led to the infanticide of every male child in Bethlehem, two years old and under. This son's parents were called Mary and Joseph. And they went down to Egypt to escape. And later they returned. And Matthew chapter 2 says, out of Egypt I called my son. You see, Jesus Christ is the greater Abraham. He is the heir that Abraham was promised, the fulfillment through him, All peoples on earth are being blessed. And what were the riches that Jesus acquired? Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews is written to Christians who are facing very hard situations. They're finding the life of faith very hard. They're tempted to give up. Hebrews 12 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who... For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before Jesus? What was the thing that Jesus set his heart on at the cross, thereby enduring the most impossible situation for a person of faith? It was you. It was his people. Jesus Christ set his face. So the joy set before him for you, so that he could win you to be with him and be his his son or his daughter. And having done that for you, do you think Jesus will keep his promises to keep you, to protect you, to love you and bless you always, whatever the circumstances? You know he will. So let's remember that this week in the life of faith and cling to the God of promise. Let's pray. Loving Father, we just thank you for the realities of the scriptures that uh, show us the world as it really is, even though it's a different time and place. That you speak to us right now in our situation. Father, I pray for each one here that we may find in this this truth, something that we can cling on to this week that sustains us, that we may continue to obey you even when it looks impossible, and that you, Lord, will show us soon how you keep your promise. Amen.